Hello, everyone, and welcome from the College of Arts and Sciences. Thank you so much for joining us for Climate Change, Insights from History. A special thank you to Nicholas Brayfogel, Associate Professor in the Department of History and the Director of the Goldberg Center for making this program possible. Now, over to our moderator, Jennifer Eaglin, Assistant Professor in the Department of History. Welcome to our discussion, Climate Change Insights from History. So this event is coming to you from the History Department at Ohio State University. My name is Dr. Jennifer Eaglin. I am an Assistant Professor of Environmental History in the department. I study Brazilian energy development and I'll be your host today. Uh, so I'm so happy that everybody's able to join us. Um, with fires raging across the U.S. West, record high summer temperatures in many places across the planet, including the Arctic and Siberia, melting glaciers, disappearing permafrost, uh, changing precipitation patterns and more, climate change represents one of the greatest, most existential threats to humanity uh, as we know it. Despite almost complete scientific agreement on the subject and strong public support, for aggressive action, climate change remains politically contentious and surprisingly difficult to confront on an international level. So we are delighted to welcome two of the world's leading experts on climate history to address how climate change history can help us find a way forward. They'll discuss past patterns of climate change, both recent and others of the deeper planetary past and what these historical processes of climate adaptation and survival tell us about humanity's prospects today. John Brooke is the Warner Woodring Chair in the Department of History and author of Climate Change and the Course of Human History, A Rough Journey. And Sam White is Associate Professor of Environmental History whose research explores the impact of extreme weather and disasters in the 16th and 17th century. He directs the Climate History Network and is editor of the Palgrave Handbook of Climate History. Both John and Sam have taught in, inter in an interdisciplinary course on climate change with faculty in earth sciences and biology. Thank you both for joining us. Uh, a quick um, kind of outlook on how we'll proceed. Uh, we'll open with a discussion among our panelists and ask the panel to, uh, to respond to you all's questions. Many of you already submitted questions um, when you registered. Others, um, we welcome that you all continue to submit questions uh, through the Q&A, uh, through the chat feature, and we will do our best to address them. So without further ado, John and Sam, uh, to get us started, what is climate history and what can we learn from it? And why do you think it is important to study climate in the past? Well, why don't I start? Um, climate history is two things. It's, it's, a, it's a branch of environmental history, which emerged about 50 years ago. Um, and the mission of environmental history is to study the relationship of people and the planet upon which we occupy, um, you know, culture and nature. Um, and so the question of climate, what was the nature of climate? How did it change? Uh, was of interest to the early environmental historians, they couldn't really do it very well because a, a science of climate change had not started very uh, powerfully. What's happened the last 40 years is in a massive accumulation of knowledge about, about the um, of natural climate change and how it has unfolded as well as human produced anthropogenic climate change. 
So in working on climate history, we've tried to accomplish several things. Uh, we've tried to see what we can do with historical records to better reconstruct climate variability and change at a really high level, particularly over the last few centuries, but before the modern instrumental record. And sometimes we do that just with the documents, sometimes do that working with uh, uh, climatologists and you know, paleoclimate sources like tree rings. We've also tried to look at how human perceptions, understandings of that uh, climate variability and change have evolved over time. Uh, and most of all, to look at the human experience of that climate change uh, and really how people have uh, dealt with it, adapted, or in some cases not adapted. So really you guys are both, have both illustrated that uh, we've been dealing with this climate thing for quite some time. So how has climate change been a constant characteristic throughout the long history of the planet? And what is the difference between natural or paleo climate change and the current anthropogenic climate change that we are experiencing today? Well, that is an enormous topic. Um, but, you know, effectively, effectively the, the, the entire geological history of the planet involves changing uh, configurations of greenhouse gases and relationships between greenhouse gases uh, and water and, and the earth, and that produces shifting climates. And there have been some dramatic, dramatic shifts that run back for billions of years. Uh, what is striking is we know that. Um, so what are, the, what are the fundamental relationships between natural and anthropogenic climate change? Natural, natural climate change has been happening. And much of it was took a long period of time, but involved enormous processes that are almost beyond our imagination. We are actually doing it really quickly. We are doing, we are forcing climate change um, in 100 years uh, more rapidly than this, certainly what's happening in 10,000 years. Um, and we are replicating the scale of climate change during the ice ages, and we are pumping, how are we doing it? We are pumping the products of previous climate change, AKA coal and oil from the Paleozoic and the Mesozoic, suddenly into the air, immediately, suddenly, vast amounts of energy is being converted into carbon dioxide, methane, et cetera, and squirted into the atmosphere overnight. And so I'd also add that there are really two things that we have to uh, keep separate, even though they are related here. That's climate variability and, and climatic change. Uh, so the, the climate system is quite complex. It's really actually a, a complex relationship among several systems uh, in the hydrosphere, atmosphere, uh, geosphere. And it, therefore, we can expect that things are going to change year to year, decade to decade, a little bit, uh, just on its own. And then there are also what we call forcings that come from outside of that, whether we're talking about volcanic eruption, uh, changes in uh, you know, solar cycles or uh, changes in orbital cycles, or as the case is now, uh, greenhouse gas forcing from carbon dioxide methane emissions. So those are often we think of as causing change, uh, especially over the longer term. I'd, I'd echo John though and say that what is really most notable and disturbing about anthropogenic climate change is just how fast it is occurring compared to anything we've experienced over the last uh, several thousand years and how it's really occurring all over the world. Uh, whereas most of the kind of uh, shorter and smaller climate changes we've seen over the past few centuries uh, will tend to be more local. Uh, besides that, it's also what we're dealing with right now and uh, what we can deal with by reducing carbon emissions. So we've used this word anthropogenic. Um, is, and, and you have talked about climate change uh, and on a broad scale. Um, and so has this always, it, has climate change always been man-made and how have humans confronted earlier um, moments of climate change um, as they've occurred? 
Well, there, <laughs> there is a debate that's been unfolding among the climate scientists whether or not early agriculture might, which is, you know, or even the rise of concentrated populations might have produced enough greenhouse gases to slightly tip the 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 composition of the atmosphere toward away from a potential ice age. Now that's still up into the air, but basically the answer to that is no. I mean, you know, if for most of us, let's not worry about that Neolithic climate change impacts. They're so incredibly slight. We are dealing with something new, completely new, the pumping of vast amounts of CO2, methane into the atmosphere uh, out of ancient, ancient deposits. Uh, this is new. This is nothing like this has ever happened before by human hand. Certain things like this have happened. The Permian extinction, you know, is you know, something that dwarfs what we're doing now, but it happened, you know, killed off the entire planet. So we don't want to do that. Um, so I, I, again, I echo the importance of you know, distinguishing variability from change. So year to year, uh, things do change a bit. Uh, but if, we, you know, that, that can be due to natural forces, just, just the inherent uh, instability, uh, chaos in the climate system. But when we're talking about the decade over decade trends towards warming, that's entirely man-made. As to uh, how people have seen climate change in the past, I think it is interesting to see that there were, uh, we might call sort of uh, yeah, religious views of you know, how people responded to extreme disasters in the past. Um, and as we get into the early modern period, there's, there's some recognition uh, on a local level of how people's change in the landscape might change local weather. Oftentimes those ideas uh, were tied to fears over deforestation, or sometimes the opposite, actually hoping to moderate the climate uh, through changing the, the environments, especially prominent in 18th century America. Uh, but really in, in terms of recognizing the modern climate change driven by greenhouse gas forcings, that's a, a process that really built up over the late 19th century. Uh, some of the first predictions were made back into the 1890s. Um, the first uh, scientist who's really credited with recognizing that it was happening is often uh, Guy Callender in the 1930s. Uh, and it really, we built up a fairly firm scientific consensus by the 1980s, which was indisputable by roughly the beginning of the 21st century. So, so this, this, uh, the climate changes that we're seeing today, uh, the, the extreme climate changes, um, like the fires and et cetera, um, are those cyclical? Will, do, do we think that they will kind of ebb and flow as we've seen maybe in this kind of climate history past? Well, if you burn up the entire West, yeah, it'll be cyclical. There won't be enough to burn. Um, but no, this is not cyclical. I mean, there, is, there are patterns in the past that look, they might be cycles, but they are in the past. What we need to be able to do to actually to show a diagram of, say, greenhouse gases, and they just run all during the last 10,000 years at a roughly somewhere between 260 and 270, 280. And then by the time I was born, 1953, it was at 315 parts per million. And in my lifetime, it has jumped to four, you know, wherever we are now, 415, 4, 420 uh, parts per million. It has leapt off the charts. Um, and, um, uh, it, it, and, and just in, in, in a lifetime, this is not a cycle. This is a fundamental shift that uh, the likes of which minimally has not been seen since the emergence from the Ice Age uh, 12, 13,000 years ago. Um, and um, 
you know, we're really looking at changes that will put us back millions of years in terms of the scale of heat um, and, and greenhouse pressure in the atmosphere. So the, the pressures on, on the effects of fire, the effects of increased hurricanes, this is a, as, as Sam has just been putting it, this is a linear change. This is a change in a direction. It's not a change in cycle. The variation. Right, so year to year, I, I couldn't tell you, for instance, whether next year is going to have uh, more heat waves or droughts in the West than this year did or the year after that. But I could tell you with fair certainty that if nothing were to change, um, you know, the, ne the average over the next 20 years is going to be worse than the average was over the past 20 years, which was in turn worse than the previous 20 year average. So it, it's really a question of thinking about the, the longer direction, uh, given that there's going to be some variability along the way. Now, there, is, there are two different things, again, to, to separate here, though. Uh, one are the underlying conditions that give rise to something like fires out in the West. Uh, the other is our vulnerability to that, uh, which of course is in our hands to change. So we could cut back on the number of forest fires in the West over the next 20 years, for instance, by reducing our vulnerability, reducing development in sensitive areas, uh, taking other precautions perhaps. But assuming we don't do that, then we can expect more fires to be there. So what historical factors have kind of influenced the, the the politicization of the very concept of climate change. I mean, you all have laid out um, a, a compelling argument about the, the environment and the changes that we are experiencing and how have those continued to be debated and also kind of um, how is apathy around uh, toward climate change kind of built uh, over time and how does that affect the way we are approaching it today? Well, you know, the, the history of the history of the, of the politics of climate change goes back to the late 1970s and, and a series of senior nuclear scientists who were called in to uh, assess climate modeling um, with deep connections to the military industrial complex and the Republican Party. Um, I'm a, I mean, literally embedded in the transition from Carter to Reagan. Uh, they, they became very important during the early years of Re the Reagan administration and they Really, in, in the 1982, some of us might remember, was a was a major recession. Nobody wanted to talk about the questions that were being put for the public um, about uh, greenhouse gases, and so there was a cycling back. What what drives this increasingly is, on the one hand, there's been funding for incredibly good climate science, and so we have this trajectory toward greater and greater knowledge and 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 general you know, vast consensus about what's happening. On the other hand, there's been an intense politicization um, in, you know, uh, um, think tank organizations that have driven a message that there's a debate. There is no debate. The debate is only, you know, astroturf created by interested parties, many of which are funded, I hate to say it, by the fossil fuel industries. Fossil fuel industries have got an enormous investment in the uh in the in the, in the, the status quo and um and reality is that to make the change we need to change the amount that we're injecting in the atmosphere that would have a huge impact on people's back pocket so how does this unfold we have a trajectory toward knowledge and we have a trajectory toward resistance to um because of economic and political interest I would say that there are two angles to this as well. Uh, on the one hand, we have to look at the psychological barriers to, in a, to action on climate change. And this is not 
my expertise, but there's been some excellent work done on this by the uh, Yale Project on Climate Change Communication, among others. And what they've really found is that climate change is often just the, the uh, in terms of actually getting motivation for action. On the one hand, it doesn't seem to have any immediate effects uh, for those who have the power to do most about it, particularly those who are in more privileged positions in wealthier countries. It often seems like something that can always be pushed off towards uh, to later. It's going to affect other people down the line and not us immediately now. Uh, however, for those who do feel its urgency, it often simply seems overwhelming. And the uh, focus on the overwhelming impacts of it, the potentially uh, existential nature of it, as you said in the introduction here, actually tends to demotivate people. It just seems like too much to do. Uh, it, it's a, a real challenge to strike the right balance. So there is uh, concern. Uh, but not uh, naked fear, which really drives people uh, not to uh, take the, the precautions, the actions they can. In terms of the political inaction, I think that's really a, a, a separate topic, and I think John's hit on that. What I would add to that is, while we have the, the disinformation campaign worldwide, it still raises the question why it's been particularly resonant in America. Um, the rise of the fossil fuel industry and, and lobby here is certainly a part of it, uh, as is sort of the, the ideological leanings of the Republican Party. Um, but I think there, there may be something more to it in the sense that it's, it's one more environmental issue that has created an identity politics uh, that's been especially strong here. Uh, people tend to uh, adopt their decision ahead of time based on what uh, group, what tribe they feel they belong to, as opposed to on an uh, even-handed assessment uh, of facts and needs. So, I mean, one of, one of the kind of at attached questions to climate change is, um, well, one, I mean, as our, as the Earth's population, as the human uh, population is growing, how is that um, accelerating, decelerating, affecting uh, the climate change that we are experiencing? And also, I mean, you make the point about um, kind of identity politics and, and who is disproportionately affected by, uh, by climate change and particularly how are uh, communities of color um, and, and minority uh, communities globally um, affected um, differently than, than some of the richer constituents that Sam pointed out uh, can push, the, push that impact off or push that, that uh, address it at a later date. Well, we have to think of two, direct, two trajectories since World War II. Um, since World War II, global population, particularly in the developing world, has inc increased dramatically. Um, and there actually is a, you know, either part of the increase in greenhouse gases is the product of more people um, driving cars, burning fires, you know, just, just living fairly simple lives. I mean, not even burning, you know, not even driving that many cars, but, you know, but just simple, just the simple reality of more people once we got the, you know, we got demography under control and mortality rates came down. The other side is the the so-called developed world um, and the, the, you know, the rapidly developing world has produced way more CO2 per capita, just off the charts. I mean, US, US CO, CO2 per, uh, per capita is on the order, has been on the order of six tons per person per year um, and relative to you know, microscopic amounts uh, from, from uh, the, the developing world to global world. And what, what is particularly striking is that most of the CO2 production from the economies, you know, exaggerated per capita CO2 production is coming from a strip of countries um, around the northern mid-latitudes, um, which 
have not been feeling the effects of climate change that dramatically. And we here in Central Ohio, doesn't look that bad. It's gonna get a little warmer, it's gonna get a little wetter. Nothing like what's happening in the tropics. Nothing like what's happening in the, in the Arctic. So we, we are sitting here in this little world, little protected world, generating vast amounts of CO2, vast amounts of greenhouse gases, and other people somewhere else are being affected. Inside this country, this means people, when, the, when things do happen, people of color, uh, based on poverty, based on location, based on um, you know, location of residence, um, based on uh, the, the impacts of, I mean, for example, Eastern North Carolina is a very poor black uh, region and they get overwhelmed by hurricanes at least once every two years. Um, and so, you know, there is a, there's a pattern to how inside the United States about how race and poverty has created a vulnerability to the effects of climate change, fire, flood, drought. So on the question of population, I really emphasize that it's, it's you know, growth in economy and energy use much more so than growth in population. That seems to be the driving change here. And looking forward over the next uh, 50 years, uh, whether population doubles, um, the highest estimates, or whether it would suddenly more or less level off, um, we have the same number of people. Uh, either way, it really presents us with the challenge of significantly decarbonizing our economy. Uh, so it, it, it will probably not make too much difference one way or the other. Uh, in terms of the unequal impact of climate change, I, I think John said on the important ideas here, on the one hand, we have uh, a large-scale geographical issue. That is to say that many of the regions of the world that will be most uh, severely affected are ones, uh, you know, where we see indigenous peoples, peoples of color. It's, it's largely not the areas that are the largest emitters, but um, uh, that, that will actually see some of the greatest impacts. Uh, but there's also a, a micro uh, geographical issue here. That is to say, through long histories of segregation, or, or long histories of oppression and discrimination, um, at local levels, we have often forced uh, people of color, poor people as well, into uh, neighborhoods, into locations that are more vulnerable. Uh, and through a legacy of um, you know, discrimination and inequality, we also see that they often have fewer means in order to uh, adapt or, or to resist uh, impacts. And of course, this is what we saw most famously, the case of Hurricane Katrina in the United States. But we can see this everywhere. I mean, for instance, the city of Los Angeles has produced its own map of its local, you know, zip code by zip code climate change vulnerabilities. And you can see the same thing uh, even there. Uh, and it's often tied to access to green space, access to, uh, you know, uh, ways out of the city that won't, wouldn't be blocked by traffic in the event of a major disaster, uh, and other local uh, microenvironmental factors. All right, believe it or not, we've only got seven minutes left, and so I'm, I'm hitting you guys with a big question here. Uh, so what can we do to mitigate uh, the, the effects of climate change that we see today? And, and I want to add into that, how important are um, national and global level uh, agreements or collaborations um, and, and the U.S.'s participation in those um, to actually um, addressing this issue or, 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 or trying to. One of the examples of what's happened in the last 30 years is the Montreal Protocols on the issue of um, um, the ozone layer and, and fluorocarbons. And, and what is striking is how effective that was when you had an international agreement that was more or less adhered to 
the potential expansion and in fact the production of this stuff declined dramatically and there was litigation. And sometimes I think, and I, and I know this is wrong, but I think, God, this has only been since roughly my childhood. We should be able to reverse this if we could act together. This is, you know, it, the problem is there's an enormous weight of CO2 in the atmosphere that's not gonna go away. You know, we, there's no magic formula to get it out of there, but we need to, you know, it, you know the entire world and mo the majority of the United States is behind national and international climate action. Um, one entity, the Republican Party, stands in the way. I mean, there's just no other way around it. I'm sorry. I uh, hate to be political, but that's just a bare raw fact. Um, and we, there are, you know, the biggest concern has been, will, what will the impact on the economy? Well, there's going to be a massive amount of investment in jobs, in infrastructure, to make the energy transition that is necessary. And we're, we are fighting a fight about how we're going to get there. And in fact, some of this is already being achieved by market and technological forces already it's beginning to be a little cheaper to produce electricity by renewable means than it is by burning coal. So coal plants are on the way out. Um, the problem is getting everybody on board. Um, China has just issued a, a fairly ambitious but long-term CO2 uh, a plan that may or may not have any muscle behind it, but they, they fully understand at the, at the national level what they need to do. The problem is getting it there to happen at the local level. Sam, you want to bring, bring us home on this question? <laughs> sure. So I, I, I definitely agree with John. I mean, the, the priority is global scale agreements to reduce carbon emissions, start sequestering carbon. I do want to add a quick historical perspective here, too, which is that when we see the major impacts, the major crises induced by past climate changes, it wasn't necessarily societies that were uh, the most exposed or the poorest but oftentimes those that had deep underlying vulnerabilities in their politics, their economics that made them unstable. It was the feedbacks between the immediate impacts of climate change on say health and agriculture and the way those rippled upwards through the economy, politics and culture uh, that often brought on the worst crises. So I just wanna emphasize that in addition to uh, mitigation, if we can't get there, it's a question of building resilience really at all levels and all ways from the personal up to the political. Um, okay, well, I guess, I mean, I, I want to leave us on one, one final question, if we can, which is um, if you guys have any final words, final thoughts um, on uh, one sentence thoughts that you can give us um, on climate change historically and the present and the future. We need to act. There's my sentence. That, I, I guess, again, tying the historical lesson here, I would say that the lesson from history is not, we had past climate variability and we made it, so it's no big deal to have anthropogenic global warming. It's really the opposite. The past climate variability we saw uh, historically is relatively small compared to what we're facing today, So, but it, yet it already had a significant impact in the past and that raises real alarms for the future. Thank you all for, that, for this thought-provoking conversation. Um, I'd also like to thank um, uh, the College of Arts and Sciences who made this possible, especially Clara Davidson, Davison, uh, the History Department, the Harvey Goldberg Center for Teaching and Excellence, the magazine Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective for their sponsorship. Um, and again, thank you to the audience for, for joining us for excellent questions and uh, uh, you know, continuing to connect with Ohio State. 
stay healthy, stay safe, and see you all next time.